Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, he's our guest, music journalist Richard Williams. With half-damp eyes, I stared to the room where my friends and I spent many an afternoon, where we together weathered many a storm, laughing and singing till the early hours of the morn. By the old wooden stove where our hats was hung, our words were told, our songs were sung, where we longed for nothing and were satisfied, joking and talking about the world outside. With hungry hearts through the heat and cold, we never thought we could get very old. We thought we could sit forever in fun, and our chances really was a million to one. Nice. We never thought we could get very old. <laughs> uh, why did you choose those, those mm. lyrics, Richard? Well, it takes me to when I first heard Dylan in uh, 1963. I had a girlfriend who'd gone off to France with her parents for three or four weeks on a camping holiday, south of France, and we wrote to each other while she was away. And while she was, she had great taste. And while she was away, she listened to a program called Salut les Copains, which was a French teenage music program where they played great stuff, you know, stuff you couldn't hear on, um, on the light program of the BBC or even Radio Luxembourg. And I remember one letter she wrote, she said, well, some of the things I've heard that I can recommend are Walk Like a Man by the Four Seasons, My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels, and something by this chap called Bob Dylan, and she spelt it D-I-L-L-O-N, um, and I didn't catch the title of it. So when she came back, we went to our local record store. It was a shop, actually, I worked in myself a bit later on. I was 16 then, when this was taking place, and uh, it was a shop where they had those wonderful booths, and there was just room for two people. And you could get in them and you'd ask to hear an album. And they'd put the album on the turntable and they'd give you the sleeve to look at and you know, read and check while you were listening. And um, we asked to listen to Freewheeling, which was been released not very long before. So we listened to it all the way through. And I have to say, um, I was, you know, you were pretty close together in those small booths and I was quite intoxicated by the proximity of this very beautiful girl um so probably perry como would have sounded good at that point but, <laughs> but freewheeling was i have to say um one revelation after another and we stood there transfixed for about 40 minutes or whatever it took to play and i do kind of feel that every song was sort of engraved on my memory at that point bob dylan's dream i picked that because well, of two reasons really one for its simplicity. I like the plainness of it. You know, I'm a sucker for the lamppost stands with folded arms and, you know, crimson flames tied through my ears as much as anyone. But but I really like the simplicity of this. And I like the way, you know, he was 21 when he wrote this song. And he's talking about remembering his first friends and how simple their lives were and how naive in a way and how good-hearted they were. And he's looking back at that already, now 21. That's pretty extraordinary to be doing that. And, and I do feel that he opened up kind of dimensions of one's own emotions. And he's always done that. He sort of tells you things that you might be able to feel, things you didn't know 
you felt or you might one day feel. He alerts you to those things. And I think this song did that. The other thing is that it's a song, you know, made from spare parts, um, which is something he's always done. Uh, on the freewheeling sleeve note, actually, it's, there's no pretense about it. It's, you know, the, the Nat Hentoff sleeve note, he says the tune is borrowed from Lord Franklin, an English ballad, which he'd just learnt from Martin Carthy on his trip to London, which he'd just returned from, and he finished off freewheeling. And I, you know, I love that about him. I, I love the fact that he's always taken things and repurposed them and recombined them and found new ways for them to shine. It's a fabulous song, isn't it? I, I still find it kind of incredible that uh, such a young man could... I never had a thought like that when I was... I was just thinking about girls and, and music, but I wasn't thinking about projecting myself into a future mm. where I would look back and think how simple my life was. <laughs> I, I find that extraordinary. Yeah. As, as, all, as you say, all the songs... All the songs on that amazing album are. Yeah. Well, there are several aspects, aren't there? From from the persona of the first album to the sentiment of I was so much um, older then, I'm younger than that now, to this, there are several instances where he's not just imagining what it's like to be older or even willing himself to be older, but, he, but as you say, he's projecting himself, yeah. isn't he? And, and, and looking, seeing what the vantage point looks like. It's an astonishingly emotionally mature position to yes, take. Yes, it was. And he, you know, by singing sometimes in an old man's voice or what sounded like an old man's voice. You know, he, he gave you an idea that, you, you know, you didn't have to sound like Bobby Rydell or somebody. You know, you could, you know, you could have mm. different textures and, and a, a different kind of patina in your voice. And um, again, you know, bigger perspectives, I think, that he opened up for us. And of course, Freewheeling also had Hard Rain and Masters of War, which were kind of bolts from the blue in the what middle of the Cold War. What were you listening to before freewheeling? So what what did it? What were you used to when this came and turned your world? Oh, upside? I was already listening to quite a lot of interesting music. I mean, I knew about Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and Thelonious Monk and Muddy Waters and you know Sleepy John Estes and that kind of stuff, as well as you know the pop music that was around. So I think I knew some of the places he was coming from. Also, I was in a folk group at the time, a school folk group, you know, three of us with guitars, nicking songs from the Kingston Trio and, you know, first Peter, Paul and Mary album. So I could see that side of, of things as well. So in a way, the ingredients were not a surprise, but the combination and the projection, I think, was, you know, and that, of course, the projection of it was what uh, very gratifyingly upset all our parents. Not mine, I have to say, who were pretty <laughs> who were pretty cool about all that. Although I do remember standing in my bedroom one night singing The Times They Are Changing as loud as I possibly could with, <laughs> with my guitar, hoping that it would leak through to them in the room downstairs and that they get the message. <laughs> Beyond your exactly. command, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's why one does it. I remember I was very gratified. We used to smoke dope up in my room. That was some years later. But, you know, we would burn incense in order to supposedly cover up the smell of uh, dope. And uh, my dad would, would scream up the stairs, I know what you're doing up there. And I would think, good. <laughs> that's the whole point. But most people's parents really, yeah. what they really hated was the sound of Dylan's voice. You know, they just, he can't sing. Yeah. You know, they, that's what that entire generation thought about him. Well, to this 
today. I mean, if you, I, I still have friends who I've mentioned Bob Dylan to within the last five, ten years, and they've lent on this bad impersonation of someone in their early twenties singing "Blowing in the Wind." I'm thinking, that's that's over, <laughs> that's over half a century ago. I mean, it's astonishing how that has stayed. That perception has just maintained itself. He did. But we we often uh, you know talk uh, Luke and I talk about the uh, the headline on Bob Dylan's eventual obituary, which will say, "Famed folk singer mm-hmm. dies," and you don't know the first thing about him. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it said that when he got the Nobel Prize. I think the BBC took it down, but it was folk legend <laughs> wins Nobel Prize for a few hours, you know, in 2016. Or actually, yeah, they do know the first thing about him, but they don't know the f- 999th <laughs> thing yeah. about him. Anyway, where did you go from uh, from that, Richard? By the way, where did you... Oh, uh, in Nottingham. 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 Yeah. Uh, in the Midlands. Well, where did I go from that? I got thrown out of school the following year. Bob Dylan may have been partly responsible for that. Uh, then I played in the band for a year, and um, then I joined the local newspaper as a cub reporter. Gossip. When you played in the band, did you tour? Did you get to the point tour. where you toured? Well, we went did to you Derby and Hull and Leicester and I know, you know, playing clubs, working men's clubs, miners' welfare, stuff like that. We were an R&B band. And funny, when Knocked Out Loaded yeah. came out, I recognized the title because the band was called the Junko Partners, which yeah. was you know, from that old James Wayne R&B song. Down the road came the Junko Partner. He was knocked out, knocked out loaded. And I think, mm. I think Dylan did that a few times in rehearsals and various recording sessions and stuff. So that wasn't a Professor Longhair song? Uh, he I did it. He did it for sure. James Wayne, uh, who was a Texas singer, recorded it in New Orleans. And that was the hit version in like 52 or something. Uh, and then I'm mm. not sure whether Longhair did it before that. I think he might have been after. And then Dr. John did it. I always liked, I mean, that's uh, one of the few things I guess I like about that album is I think Knocked Out Loaded is a, is a good name for yeah, an it's album. Great. It's certainly very it's memorable. Great. The thing about that band I was in, our rhythm guitar player was also a local performer in, on the folk circuit. He was very funny. His name was Dave Turner. And he did the most, this was 64, and he did the most brilliant Dylan impersonation you've ever heard in your life. But what happened was the beginning of 65, before Dylan came over for that first proper tour, when Dylan mania was kind of growing generally, Dave would do a little kind of intermission set within our show and we'd all disappear and he would pick up his jumbo and he'd do a couple of Dylan songs and got 10 times the reaction that anything we did either side of that got. And it was funny. It was the kind of transferred, you know, Dylan mania is the only word. Um, that, that, was, that was part of the sort of the growth of, of Dylan's popularity here. I'm imagining you in a, in a band sort of like a sort of proto animals outfit, like the, like the ones in Don't Look Back that he's talking to, who look a bit like yeah, animals, and he's talking about what songs they're playing. And that's pretty much exactly what it was. You know, we did Bo Diddley, Jimmy Reed, Howling Wolf, yeah. kind of stuff. You know, all those bands like the Stones, the Animals, you know, Pretty Thing. All those bands were looking for a way to kind of make what we were doing more modern. Um, our band had a lot of blues purists in it, so they weren't too keen on. No. Some of us. Did you want to do that for a living? And was it was it really a terrible thing when you had to? No, not really. I, I, I mean, I, I, I love music and I, I spent a lot of time listening to great musicians. And, you know, I was the same age as a, a kid called Tony Williams, who was the drummer with Miles Davis when he was 16. 
And I listened to Tony Williams and I just thought, well, that's the best drummer I've ever heard. You know, I'm never going to do a hundredth, able to do a hundredth of what he did. So I think I'll go and try and do something I maybe can do with it. Uh, so I was sad, you know, because I'd played in school orchestras and stuff for most of my life and things. And I was sad to stop playing music. There it was. But you got to write about oh, yeah. it. And you, so when you, when you joined that newspaper, yeah. what kind of stuff were you writing? Uh, golden weddings, funerals, factory fires, juvenile court reports. Um, <laughs> but I also got to write the kind of... The dream come yeah. true, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, you can laugh, but it's pretty good, pretty good background for a, a life in general. Yeah, no, when you, when you start out, your actual vocation... Yeah, and and I got to write the teenage page as well, and you know, in the mid '60s, none of the editors or sub editors or anybody, or the chief reporter or anybody on the paper knew what this teenage stuff was about. So you could write about anything you wanted. You know, if you wanted to review the Velvet Underground's first album, you could do it. Nobody would say, you know, is the readership going to like this because you were a teenager and they thought you knew. Did you get to see Dylan in '65 yeah, or '66? Yeah. Sheffield City Hall. First right. show of the tour, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Front row of the it, Grand yeah. Circle, seven and sixpence, with the same girl, although we weren't still going out, but we went to see Bob together. And wow. that was something else because he did a lot of the songs from Bring It All Back Home, which hadn't been released. So to hear It's All Right, Ma, Gates of Eden, two or three of those songs for the first time was riveting yeah. to hear them live, just the moment. It's all right, Mark, particularly. I was just devastated. Did you detect any kind of restlessness? Yes, only once. In I remember very clearly, he rushed through the times they were changing as if he just wasn't interested in it at all. That's not how he treated the other songs, particularly the side two of Bring It All Back Home songs, because they were still new to him. And I guess he knew we hadn't heard them either. So, But I do remember times they were changing was just you know a disinterested, Russian performance so that was a sign that was interesting and you finally wrote well you wrote a, a man called mm. alias a, about 30 mm. years ago now about yeah. uh, Dylan yeah. was that uh some, a book you'd always wanted to write or how did that come no, about that, it's a great book that, still that's kind of you it came about because Bloomsbury the publishers were doing a series of kind of illustrated books on culture heroes and I got asked if I would like to do Dylan in that series. And I thought, well, you know, I haven't done what Anthony Scaduto or Robert Shelton did or what Clinton Alien did, which was interview everybody, you know, go everywhere. And talk to but maybe this is a chance, since it's an illustrated book, maybe this is just a chance to write down what I think about Dylan and how, you know, what being together through life with him has, uh, has been like. <laughs> so that was... That was what yeah, up to that yeah, point. Up to that point. And now we're 30 years on, still together through life. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought I thought the the photos worked really well because it is a big, Not, I guess I don't have the hardback. I've got the uh, paperback. So, But I guess it's almost like a, well, I don't mean to disparage it at all because, but it's coffee book yeah, that's table exactly size. What it is. But you got to see those, a lot of those photos, like for instance, photo of from the front of, uh, or the, the photo that was supposed to be on the front of Tarantula, yeah. for instance, which I've seen in smaller versions. But it was, it's great to see it in an actual book because it's beautifully composed. And, uh, I mean, the writing is fabulous because there's not that much of it compared to a Clinton mm. Halen book. And so it's very concise. Mm. And it's full of, you know, very strong opinions up to 1991, uh, mm. I guess. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, I have to say I haven't read it since I wrote it, but I'm sure I still feel the same <laughs> about, about everything that's in it. I'm reading at the moment The Ballad of Bob Dylan, the Daniel Mark Epstein book. Have you read that? No. Came no. Out, came out in 2011. It's very, very good. So what's the USP of that? Does it come from a different it's angle? It's like a much uh, better informed, more literate, much longer version of mine, I would say, in that it's somebody's, it's somebody's <laughs> take, uh, but a very good one. I'm really enjoying it. Mm. A lot of stuff in it that's new to me, probably not new to um, Clinton or Michael Gray or somebody. But it no, if it's... Actually, I, I did copy something from A Man Called Alias just very quickly because I thought it was such a nice piece of writing. It's about being quizzed by reporters and don't look back, which we've all seen. But uh, you wrote, observing him dealing with his inquisitors was like watching an expert fencer faced with a blindfolded man wearing boxing gloves. Dylan nicked and slashed and cut strips off the reporters so deftly that they often didn't notice until they were out of the room. <laughs> I thought that we saw that. That's exactly what happened. I could sort of watch those scenes over and over again <laughs> Because they, I mean, it is a bit that, like they're unarmed men facing. Well, I knew, I knew one or two of those people, the <gasps> older generation of journalists, music journalists, who went to try and talk to him, you know, because just doing their job, but coming up against something that they just couldn't comprehend because they were existing in the world of entertainment and he was somewhere else. And watching the switch is quite interesting. You you see in um, in Scorsese's No Direction Home, you have the the December 65 press conference in San Francisco, where he seems faintly bemused by some of the questions he's getting. And then a week later, he's saying, you know, how many protest singers? 136. <laughs> yep. And he's just, and that, that act has completely arrived, fully formed. And that's him for, for a good time after that, where he's just not giving a straight answer to anything because he just can't see the point. I'm kind of grateful that I've never had the opportunity to interview him because I, you know, the, the absolute terror of getting that kind of, treatment. Although I do think that he's one of those people, you know, the interviews I've read in the last few years, maybe starting with Cameron Crowe in the biograph notes, that if you ask him the right questions, then you'll get interesting answers. You know, I thought the interview he gave from the guy from the um, magazine for the American Association of Retired Persons, or whatever it was called, mm. where he talked about mm -hmm. doing the, all the Sinatra songs and how he'd, mm. first decision he made was not to have a piano player because that would remove a certain kind of cabaret or nightclub feeling from the song straight away. I mean, what a brilliant decision mm. to make. And then, but to be willing to talk about doing that, he will give those kind of really illuminating answers if, I guess, the mood is is right and he feels comfortable with the person he's talking to have you read the uh, book of interviews um by bill flanagan written in my soul no. oh well it's a great book and i just happen to have it here because i was hoping that something like this might come up bill flanagan asks him he's talking about mr tambourine man and uh he says uh, do all your songs have a literal reality to you and dylan says well songs are just thoughts for the moment, they stop time. Songs are supposed to be heroic enough to give the illusion of stopping time with just that thought. To hear a song is to hear someone's thought 
no matter what they're describing. If you see something and you think it's important enough to describe, then that's your thought. You only think one thought at a time. So what you come up with is really what you're given. When you sit around and imagine things to do and to write and to think, that's fantasy. I've never been much into that. Anybody can fantasize. Little kids can. Old people can. Everybody's got the right to their own fantasies. But that's all they are, fantasies. They're not dreams. A dream has more substance to it than a fantasy, because fantasies are usually based on nothing. They're based on what's thrown into your imagination. But I usually have to have proof that something exists before I even want to bother to deal with it at all. It must exist. It must have happened, or the possibility of it happening must have some meaning for me. I'm not going to write a fantasy song. Even a song like Mr. Tambourine Ran really isn't a fantasy. There's substance to the dream. Mm. Good question. Great answer. <laughs> and you know, Bob Dylan's dream again. Well, again, I mean, dreams and trains and dreams and trains. Uh, but his feelings about dreams are just, he makes a psychiatrist look like, a, you know, an mm. amateur. You know, he goes into dreams and, and considers that they're real. That's, I think, what he's saying in that is that dreams are completely and utterly real. Yes, I guess that's and what that's, he's That's what I write about. And maybe that's... That's what we, why I can't understand half of, half of his songs. I mean, he still can't. Yeah. But that's the thing. He, he, you know, he, there... I mean, to me, one of the great things I learned from him is that you don't have to understand everything. You can feel something. You can part understand it. You can maybe almost wholly understand it. But even if there's something that you just don't get, that doesn't invalidate it. It can be an enticement to... Just think more or, you know, further about something. I think he's always been good at giving us that. I agree. And then when something literal jumps out at you, like staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel writing Sad Lady of the Lowlands for you, the kind of directness of it is so arresting mm. and so atypical, isn't it? Because you're so, you've retuned your mind mm. to think in a certain way and you're thrown off course by, by literal fact, mm. supposedly. Uh, somebody a long time ago in the 60s, and I, it was somebody writing a piece about him in Jazz Monthly, of all things, and I can't remember who it was, said that he makes words mean different things. And the example that person gave was, she belongs to me. What does belongs mean in that song? It doesn't mean you know, possession in the sense that we think of possession within a, a romantic relationship. It means something else. Just about my favourite of his later songs is You're Going to Make Me Lonesome When You Go, you know, which is just mm. full of that kind of ambiguity and you know, different weights of meaning within familiar words. You weren't a big fan in the book, uh, in The Man Called Alias, of his uh, Nashville Skyline period, which is full of very simple songs, which I feel, I mean, they, they spoke to me uh, maybe I wasn't aware of, well, I certainly wasn't aware of Dylan's uh, history, and I wasn't aware of uh, even what a cliche in a song particularly was, having grown up, even listening to the, the Beatles, uh, you know, who were very partial to cliches when they started. But a song like uh, To Be Alone With You speaks really deeply to me, because I heard it when I was young, and it's very simple, and I think beautiful, and also I think works in that same way. Like, to be alone with you, what does that mean? It's not just physical, it's emotional. It's, it's actually, I think, goes quite deep. But I don't know if you ever, I know that you weren't a fan of that uh, album back well, then. Well, it's, 
with that song. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, I was disappointed with Nashville Skyline because I still wanted him to kind of blast me apart in the way that he the way that he had done before. And I felt that still John Wesley Harding did that in a kind of more restrained way. And with Nashville Skyline, I just, I couldn't follow him there wholeheartedly. Although I did see the other day for the first time, I think it's from a Johnny Cash show where he does I Threw It All Away and he modifies Mm -hmm. the chorus. He doesn't repeat I Threw It All Away. He just sings it once at the end of every verse. And to me, that transforms the song. It just takes the kind of goo out of it somehow and makes it much crisper and more interesting song. Yes, I had a bit of trouble with Nashville Skyline and, you know, bits of self-portrait I liked and still do, but, you know, it was kind of... If you'd been so committed to what he was doing in the first the first five years, it could throw you. I, I never stopped being interested in him or, in a way, trusting him. But, of course, there's always that over-anxiety to welcome him back to the true path. You know, New Morning was a bit like that. You know, I remember writing about that and being probably a little more enthusiastic than I should have been. And maybe the same, <laughs> maybe the same with Oh Mercy. You know, was seen. I think Oh Mercy has aged almost better than anything he's done. I've, I've, I've thought this would be a phase, but I've now felt it for a good three or four years. I think it might be my favourite of his really? albums. It's, there's something about, I was listening to it again this week, there's something about the, the old voice because it arrives kind of fully formed after a very strange period where he can't quite get a foothold. And it just seems properly committed and produced and also as if he's singing in the voice that he wants to be singing yeah. in. And then it kind of goes away yeah. again. But I think that was the first time. Yeah, yeah it's a, I, I, yes, I'll go back and have another listen now. But, I, I, you know, everything is broken and fabulous. Just talking about the kind of the waves of his career, you know, there is that, there's still that, desire to welcome him back well again and again our guests will will, will bring back the the late 80s as that time when we needed him back more than ever mm. in fact our last guest john harris said maybe that was the only off time uh, looking back over the entire arc maybe that was the only time he was really lost mm. yeah, um and i wonder if that's true well i've drawn the, it's funny i've I... drawn the short straw because you asked me to talk about <laughs> knocked out loaded and uh, down in the groove and I guess that's well, should we just get it over I with? I guess quickly? that's the period that you're you're talking about, really. Yeah, under your spell, we can start there talking about <laughs> bad songs. Yeah. Something about you that I can't shake. I don't know how much more of this I can yeah. take. If if somebody asked you who wrote that, you would not say Bob Dylan. No, is that the one that's co-written with Carol Bayasega? Y- yeah, although I read that she said that he gave her credit for that, although he used almost she gave him two lines or lyrics. a line or the title or something. Right. But anyway, Funnily enough, yeah, it doesn't sound too bad. I mean, a lot it. of the stuff from that period sounds really awful, but that track sounds quite okay. But, you know, Knocked Out Loaded, the excuse for its existence is Brownsville Girl, which is you know, one, of the, one of his great epics. I, and I'm sad, kind of, that we'll never know how much Sam Shepard contributed to it, because mm. he's the co-writer, and it would be interesting yeah. to know what the procedure was there and the, the balance of contribution. You know, even with Brownsville Girl, you've got New Danville Girl, which was recorded for mm. Empire Burlesque and then not included, which you might prefer because it doesn't have that, I do. that kind of whacking backbeat from the drummer and the 
the mm. female vocal choir is a little more restrained. But on the other hand, I mean, I'm glad we got both because yeah. Brownsville Girl, the backing vocals are quite funny, you know, because they're, they're sort of commenting on what he's <laughs> saying all the time. And that's quite amusing, mm. like sort of the real Greek chorus kind of thing. And it's also got the best single line of phrasing in Bob Dylan's entire canon, which is when he sings... Sometimes people who suffer together are stronger connected than people who are most content. And he sings that in a single breath, and it's so beautifully phrased. When I heard that and, you know, clocked it, that's when I started thinking about his, his phrasing and going back and listening to him very early on. You know, the last couple of lines of Bob Dylan's Dream, $10,000 at the drop of a hat, the way he sings that line, you listen to that now, you know, the, the way the 21-year-old phrased that line is astonishing. And I think it's his most underrated characteristic, his, his phrasing. It's so beautiful. And I think everybody really noticed it when he started doing theme time radio hour, you know, and you'd listen to him talking mm. and just went, you know, the one about flowers, did you hear that? The episode about flowers? Mm -hmm. I think we've heard the When all, he yeah. just yeah. reads a list of flowers, you know. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and you think, what? He's reading a seed catalogue and making it sound like, you know, <laughs> visions of Joanna or something. You know, anyway, phrasing. So that's Brownsville Go. And the rest of that, um, you know, it's all thrown together, isn't it, from various sessions. Yeah, I mean, actually, I didn't realize which ones he'd written and which ones he hadn't written when I listened to it just recently. So I listened to They Killed Him, which I was a bit worried about just from the start, just from the title. And you can't unhear that children's choir yeah. once it kicks in. I yeah. mean, that'll haunt yeah. me <laughs> and not in a good way. And, and also, I, I hadn't realized it was a Chris Christopherson song. So you can't blame Dylan for, for writing it. But uh, I do think it's a terrible song and the chris christopherson version or at least the one that i found on youtube is no better i was i was thinking um christopherson would have done it you know spare as a kind of you know abraham martin and john kind of ballad no it's just as awful i, I just think it's yeah it's sappy and uh, but are you as fond of brownsville yeah. girl as, as i am oh god yeah everything about it is uh it's so entertaining i mean i'm not i'm not that fond of the production i'm not that fond of the nope. phil spectory nope. production but you know, what can you do? And I, I do prefer the Danville girl, uh, Spareness. But I think the backing singers are hilarious. For some reason, it always reminds me when they talk about when they first show up and their car is, uh, they're having the trouble with their car. I'm, I'm always reminded, and there's no reason for this other than, it, you know, sort of connections and dreams. There's a scene in Easy Rider, which was for me a big formative experience when I saw that. That was a bit like you being in the mm -hmm. record booth um, with with the girl. And I was just completely taken by that movie. And there's a, a scene, I don't know if you know it or if you remember it, but they get a flat. Peter Fonda gets a flat in his motorcycle. So they, they, they bring their motorcycle uh, down the road and uh, the, this farmer uh, says that he can they can repair the motorcycle in his barn. And so there's a very heavy-handed scene where the motorcycle is clearly the modern horse because they're actually, the farmer is, uh, or the rancher rather, is, is pounding a horseshoe at the same time. So the, pretty gross symbolism. But they have this meal with him and his wife and his kids and they chat. And it's like, they're not talking about the swap meets here have gotten pretty corrupt. 
But they are, and they're actually having quite a sappy and awful conversation. Actually, the dialogue is some of the worst <laughs> in the film. But somehow that thing of, of these new cowboys being taken in by yeah. this old cowboy, I find that very moving. And I find the, um, I find that bit of Brownsville girl when they're just, you know, waiting for Henry Porter to be really, really affecting, you know, it's, it's a beautiful bit of writing. I also love the fact that he chose the gunfighter because the, I mean, the gunfighter is, is a film about celebrity. It's about the impossibility of being famous, of people endlessly coming up to you and saying, go on then prove yourself. You're the guy, aren't you? You're the, you're the guy. And him just, just like, fuck off. I just want to have some steak and eggs and a shave and kids all the time demanding that he kind of draw on me. I can, I can, I can outdraw you and all this. And this, it, it's irresistible to think that there must be something about that degree of fame and celebrity that either Dylan or Sam Shepard or both really got their hooks into, you know. And he's he's capable of being very moving, touching, affecting, and funny at the same time. You know, he makes you laugh just by the little twist of a word or something, and that happens in, in mm. Brownsville Girl. Like, the lyric I'd really like to have recited would have been the whole of Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, which I mm. sometimes think is the one, you know, if I could only keep one, that's the one I'd keep because it's got everything in it. And it's a bit like Brownsville Girl in that way. It's got that kind of rambling narrative that, you know, fires off in all those different directions. And it, there was only Jim and him. I just burst out laughing every time yeah. I hear that, <laughs> no, matter how much, no matter how many times. You know. And yet it can chill you as well. I love those extended Western narratives. I mean, obviously, he'd spent a lot of time listening to El Paso by Marty Robbins at, at some point, <laughs> hadn't he? Yes, uh, I love that genre. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you're, um, that you're a big fan of that, Richard, because I think uh, a, a lot of people think it's a bit of a, not filler, but that it doesn't fit on Blood of the Tracks. And I, I, it doesn't matter to me whether it fits or not. I think it's a brilliant song. I totally mm, agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it's, in a way, Buckets of Rain doesn't fit on you know there, I mean, there are probably four or five tracks that people think of as the core tracks of, of blood on the tracks and everything else is slightly different to me blood on the tracks is just it's blood on the yeah. tracks it's it's like the bible yeah. <laughs> it's not you can't say that you know deuteronomy doesn't fit um, I, I resisted for a long it. time buying the uh, more blood more tracks box set because i thought mm. i think this is a perfect album you know it's like kind of blue miles davis i don't want to know that there were one track there was a, a second take I, I don't need to know that you know i just mm. but then i did and make the plunge uh, after about a year of, of wavering and i thought it was great actually it just showed me again how hard he works on these songs you know that he, you know he holds them up for inspection from every angle every conceivable mm. angle before he decides which one and even then, of course, it's not set in stone in any sense. But thank God he did decide on those, those takes for the master of blood on the tracks. How cautious were you in 1975 when, when that album came along? Because, you know, I mean, I'm not sure when you were prepared to kind of uh, re-embrace him after the, the, the Nashville skyline in your morning period. Were, were you able to say he's back or were you just a little bit more cautious? Oh, no, that? I wasn't cautious at all. I, actually, then, when that came out, I was working at... Island Records doing A&R. And while I was there, Dylan made his deal with David Geffen to do Planet Waves and then Before the Flood. And Geffen made a deal with Chris Blackwell at Island to give us those records for 
the UK, possibly Europe, I can't remember. So we released Planet Waves. And when I heard, you know, because so we got the tapes early and listened to it, and I, I was thrilled by that. Um, I thought that mm-hmm. was everything I wanted to hear from him. Yeah, me too. And then he'd gone back to Colombia for Blood on the Tracks, but I felt even, I remember a colleague of mine going and getting an early copy of that and bringing it in, and we listened to it in the office, and I felt even more so about that, obviously, no doubt. Well, also, I'm glad you brought up Planet Waves because you'd seen the band at the Albert Hall by then, hadn't you? And so, I mean, you must have been, you must have had a few years of building up as a real band disciple. So when Planet Waves came along, which is, let's not forget, the only time they ever went into the studio together to make an album, the expectations must have been huge for you. Yes, um, I guess they were. Uh, The band at the Albert Hall in 1971 was one of the... three or four best concerts I've ever been to in my life. It was just staggeringly great. And now we've heard it, we know that you're right. Yeah, isn't that great? (laughs) (laughs) What a relief that was. Um, uh, It is is astonishing. So yes, Planet Waves, there was a lot riding on that, um, if you cared about those two organisms. Um, And it's a a Mm. great album. Should we just tidy up with the um, knocked out, loaded, down in yeah, the yeah, groove? Yeah. Just because there are some good things on in down in the groove. Um, the reason we decided to ask you about it is because when you you wrote an article for the Guardian, uh, I guess it was last year, sort of uh, what the beginners Bob Dylan tracks would be, and I think you just had to choose three or something. But then you posted an addendum later on about other tracks that you really mm. value, and you mentioned "90 Miles an Hour" down to Dead End Street from Down in the Groove, which I went to because I thought, what? Because I, I think I'd only heard it. I probably mm-hmm. only heard it once mm-hmm. or twice uh, before then. And I listened to it. And again, I thought, what? And then I listened to it again, basically, because I thought, well, Richard Williams rates this. Let's, let's <laughs> just, just hold on a second here. And then I got it actually quite quickly. It's just one of those things where you think, oh, he's right. This is actually a great uh, version of, of a song that I didn't know from uh, before about an affair that's gone wrong and and the the um musical arrangement of it is very is outrageous but it works in in that it it never gets out of first gear considering it's 90 miles an hour down a dead end street it's basically sort of this terrible circular trap where you, you know it, it never really gets started it's just a it, it's fear fear and misery and pain and it's a terrific cover and that did make me go back to the album and i thought there's some really good stuff. Well, the last in here. three tracks. So yeah, thank you. Last, that was, that's my pleasure. That's my that's what I'm here for. Um, you know, those last. You know, there's a lot of again a lot of dross on it, comparatively speaking. But the last three tracks, I think, are really very good. Mm. I've never heard. I think Hank yeah. Snow did uh, "90 Miles an Hour Down the Dead End Street." I've never heard. Is he does, yeah. um, it's very jaunty. I looked I, it up. It's on. It's on I YouTube. It's the opposite. I, I don't really want to. I just love what Dylan did with that. And uh, Shenandoah, the, the track after it, I, I like mm-hmm. partly because it's very hard for anybody to do Shenandoah badly. It's such a beautiful song, and I. It reminds me of my childhood. I think my mum used to sing it. I don't know if you've ever heard. Bill Frizzell, the guitarist, doing it with Rai Kuda. It's a very beautiful version. And I love Dylan mm-hmm. doing it. It's so, you know, it's, it's, I love the way it skips along. And then uh, Rank Strangers to Me, which is the last track of the album, mm-hmm. um, which is a Stanley Brothers song. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as cheerful as most Stanley Brothers songs did. 
There's <laughs> 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 this guy. <laughs> comes back, sees all his old friends, and this is where we come around to Bob Dylan's dream. And I, you know, I wonder if he was thinking, you know, he comes back, sees all his friends, and doesn't recognize any of them. You know, and he's in some kind of netherworld, the Bardo or somewhere. Um, yes, and, you know, all these spirits of his former friends, all completely unrecognizable to him. It's kind of tragic. It makes me wonder if those last three songs on Down in the Groove, it would have been a better album if he if he'd stuck to the kind of the country covers because. I looked at the ones I like and I looked at the ones that I don't like. And, and like you say, those last three are really strong. Mm. But before it are the four that he wrote or co-wrote. Mm. And I think they're probably my least favourite. And I don't quite know what... I'm not sure he knew where he was going when he, when he made the album or what he wanted to do. I'm not sure that's clear. But those last three tell a different story. And I kind of wish there was just a, a, an album of, of country cover mm. standards that would, would do me fine. Well, those three tracks are nice. You know. Well, speaking of... Um, yeah. Just a nice EP... We had a book that was uh, recommended to us, or, well, yes, it was recommended with huge reservations by uh, the novelist uh, Edward Docks, mm. who was one of our guests, who was a huge Bob Dylan fan. He recommended this book, which I don't know if you, many people have read. It's called Seeing the Real You at Last. Uh, and it was a memoir of his... Uh, I've, I'd seen it on Amazon, but I'd never would have thought of buying it. But Ed Docks actually gave me the permission, in a way, to buy this really <laughs> trashy, sort of memoir about his dissolute 80s life by Britta Lee yeah. Shane, who was his very brief girlfriend, or the girlfriend of his road manager. So they have this sort of uh, 90 miles an hour down a dead end street, but not as profound as as that uh, little thing. Have you, no, have you read I, it? <laughs> I know what it is. I've seen it's bits a, yeah. of it and I've read a couple of interviews with her. The only good thing about it, the only good thing, and I'm not recommending it, <laughs> I've read it so you don't have to, <laughs> is that it does give you the ambience of the drunk, stoned, middle-aged, lost Bob Dylan, who is making albums like Knocked Out Loaded. You have to read her turgid prose, but it does it does throw a little bit of light on uh, just how lost yeah, he was. Well, he, he wouldn't have done hearts, according to her. He wouldn't have done Hearts of Fire if he hadn't been lost, would he? You know, it's, no, it's just no, so, really. you know, no kind of discrimination at all. But we all go through passages in our life long or short, mm. that we're maybe not so proud of and that we, you know, lose our way a bit. And he did that. And it uh, seems to me, he seems to probably to you too. But, you know, he came back. And Knocked Out Loaded is maybe his his most honest album title. I mean, it, it sure as hell sounds like he <laughs> knock, knocked it out drunk one night. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. That's, that's what it says on the tin. You give it that. And <laughs> down in the groove, you know. He was really yeah, feeling yeah. down. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was a terrible groove. How did um, Rough and Rowdy Ways oh, hit you? Oh, very powerfully, very powerfully. Like everybody, you know, I heard the, the Kennedy song first and um, was astonished by it. I loved the level of detail that he brought into it, the detail of the day of the assassination, but also asking Wolfman Jack to play all these amazing things and then dropping all kinds of weird things in, like, do you know Dorothy B. Hughes, who wrote noir novels in the 40s? She wrote, oh, she yeah, wrote In a Lonely right, Place. Yeah. She wrote a great oh. book. She wrote a great oh. book called Ride the Pink Horse, and that crops up in, in that song. It was actually a movie, with quite an obscure movie, with Robert Mitchum, but there it is. And, you know, it puts these little things in for us to pick up if we want. 
So I love that, and I love I love the music of it as well because, to me, Dylan's music is just as important as his words, just as important, and has been you know ever since the beginning. You know, um, something like "It's All Right, Ma," you know, that amazing guitar and the, the the single harmonica blast at the end of every verse. You know, that's an incredible bit of arranging. So I loved "Modemos Foul." because it didn't have a tempo, it kind of floated, and the musicians played with such sensitivity. And in the end, when the drummer is using his mallets and the piano player is sort of playing uh, arpeggios and things, it's like a John Coltrane quartet piece, um, one of their more subdued things. And that's just amazing that he can bring, that he can organize music like that still now. And I found lots of things in in the rest of the album that I liked very much. Uh, you know, I like the the kind of Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters blues band kind of thing. I think he's really, since Together Through Life, I think he's really found a way to use that, to turn that into something of his own, something modern and interesting. And I liked, you know, I like the kind of, slightly Neapolitan mandolin sort of things that there are in that album as well. Very romantic. I thought it was wonderful, fully formed. And somehow, I, it's a statement, don't ask me of what, but it's a statement of something. And it felt, you know, in, when was it? Was it May last year it came out when we were all going through a really difficult time? June. Yeah. June, yeah. you know, when mm. the, the pandemic had set in. It felt like something, like kind of marker somehow. I listened to it more and more, having found it quite difficult um, originally. And uh, I just, this morning, I just felt like listening to um, Crossing the Rubicon. And I, I thought, okay, I'll go to Spotify. And I put in Rubicon. And of course it came up because it's the only song that's ever had Rubicon in the title that I that I know of. You know, there's only one thing on Spotify that says that has Rubicon. And, and, but I listened. I listened. I don't know why. It was one of those things. I thought I'm, that's what I'm going to listen to right now. And uh, I listened to it because I could never understand. It's one of those things. Of course, I don't barely get it, but I could never understand why he says "put on my hair." I think that's what he says. I put on my hair. But then this morning I did. I thought. Yeah. You know, I thought to me, I, I thought I got crossing the Rubicon this morning in a way because I thought it's about his his life and his career, more of his career. Each time he became a new Bob Dylan, he crossed another Rubicon. And, you know, and his hair was always part of it. You know, I put on my hair, you know, that's and I crossed the fucking Rubicon again. I, I'm going to do it again. You know, it. it anyway, that's how <laughs> that's how. That's how I spend my days. The, um, the other thing that struck me about that album was that I thought it had been influenced by two things. One was his experience of doing the Theme Time Radio Hour program and just talking, phrasing, you know, again, just the ease with his speaking voice. And he, he's almost talking from a lot of that album. And the other thing related was doing the the standards, the Sinatra songs, the American Songbook albums. You know, you couldn't sing Autumn Leaves or My One and Only Love and mess about with it. You've got to sing those Broadway songs with their 
chromatic chords and the you know strict AABA structure. You've got to sing them as as written. You can't mess around with them, like he got used to doing with his own songs. So that brought him back to singing the song, and brought a kind of discipline back to his singing. And I think you can hear, in quite an important way, I think you can hear that in uh, Rough and Rowdy Way. You know, I think his as a vocal performance, the whole thing is really impressive and strong. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside, still immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Now, when all of the bandits that you turn your other cheek to all lay down their bandanas and complain, and you want somebody you don't have to speak to, won't you come see me, Queen Jane?